Welcome <laughs> to Valar Reredis for Duncan Egg. Our approach will be different than it was for A Song of Ice and Fire. Rather than setting out a specific number of chapters for each week, we'll aim to spend two hours per episode covering as much as we can each time. We'll cover the setting, the parallels, the plot connections to A Song of Ice and Fire, the plot within the story itself, and almost everything else you can imagine. And I know you can imagine quite a bit. So this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, we're changing the, the format a little bit, but the discussions, the humor, analytical style should all be pretty much the same. But there is... It's hard to do this by a chapter because the chapters are so much shorter, yeah, right? right? Yeah, right, uh, yeah. In some ways, they're not even chapters. Like, you could, yeah. you could look at them that way, but I don't. So uh, I, I <laughs> wanted to come up with a different way to, to manage this, and I think this is going to be pretty fun. So you've already heard him speaking. But we should reintroduce our friend, our longtime co-host, who hasn't been here in a little while, but the return of Dancing Sean of House Beard. How you doing, my friend? It's great to have you back. I'm doing great. I'm doing super awesome. It's great to be back. I'm pumped about this. I've become way more solid since when I used to be here for (laughs) the sake of the TV show. I've read all the books. Still have a couple more wins chapters to read, but I've... I've read uh, all, all, all of this series, of course, and I just in the past couple of weeks, I've double read The Hedge Knight. So where so are you in it. with uh, Fire and Blood in the World of Ice and Fire? I haven't asked that. I have not okay. even looked at those. Right. I, a couple times in the past, I think maybe even when a show was still on, I like poured over some family lines of the Targaryens or whatever, but it was just too overwhelming. I didn't have a way to connect these characters to any story or image there's so many repeating names it's hard to keep straight i'm starting to get it better now it is more of the uh, advanced class (laughs) yeah Yeah. yeah. so we have that to look forward to in the future are your fresh insights great absolutely yeah Yeah. so you've been doing a little something on your own over there you started a youtube channel we should definitely mention that before we get into our our hedge night coverage yeah dancing sean on youtube and uh I was sparked to action by the TV show The Boys, which is, you know, simply put, it's like a superhero show. But the reason I like it is because it's really outstanding. It's way more about uh, a, a sort of a realistic look at how society would react to the existence of superheroes, right? right? right. How do politicians manage it? Are, are they, do they have PR agents? And mm-hmm. how do they decide whether or not to fight crime in New York or Detroit? Some, some. It's not all about just punch fighting scenes, and and all the characters aren't just clearly good or bad. There's a lot of gray. The, the show deals with social issues like sexism, and it was just way more. I I remember when I first saw previews for it, I was like, ah, I just. Was <laughs> uh, Tony Soprano's mom? You know, eh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> was my attitude about it. Maybe a what's a Larry David kind of. Eh. <laughs> but I walked in on an episode of it, and I was like. It didn't even look like it was like a drama. It was like the serious conversation going on. It wasn't even, oh, it didn't even seem like a superhero show. And I, so anyway, I covered all that. Uh, I, I, would, I did it kind of in a rush trying to hit the second season coming out. And I went back and did all the first season and then caught up to the second season. And then since then, I tried to cover um, all the Academy Award nominees for Best Picture for this past year. Yeah. And I just want to kind of grow the catalog doing different things. Right now, what I'm trying to do is one-minute videos where I can do sort of spoiler-free, just give you an idea of what something's about, the the genre, who stars in it, when did it come out, 
you know, without spoiling the plot, but give me an idea of what type of movie it is, what kind of tone, the director, things like that. So, now, this this is interesting to me because I can I think about what you used to do when I first met you. Now, Sean and I have known each other a very long time, more than 20 years. And when... More than 20 minutes. Yes, also more than 20 minutes. <laughs> and you managed a blockbuster video back when those, I guess, maybe do any still exist? This is, anyway, it just shows you how long I ago think I, I think I, yeah, I thought, I thought I saw a news article that was like, the final blockbuster is closing. So maybe <laughs> that one's gone too. Yeah. So this, to me, it's like you would have done this, ex- tried to briefly expre- explain movies to customers who would come in and ask like, what's this about? Or something like that. So it's kind of like, it's come full circle a bit. You have, you've already had yeah. this experience. You've long been a cinephile. So it's a really good uh, place for you to have uh, put your energies. The Boys was a deep dive. I-, I thought that I would do like 15 minutes per episode, two hours per episode. <laughs> for, you know, it, you know, the, it was a little shorter at the beginning. We got longer and longer throughout. But for the movies, at least right now, yeah, I'm trying to do quick, succinct analysis. Single minute video. Like you yeah. said, a skill that I've honed. There's so many movies out there. That's, you know I was going to say no that too. All of them. Exactly. Yeah. Like it was valuable and, to me because I don't pay attention to what's out there. Like yeah. I really don't. I pay way more attention to TV shows and, and books and things like that. Movies. People talk about popular movies. And a lot of times I'm like, I don't know. So I, I watched a bunch of yours to, and it really helped me catch up on what the big movies Even are. among good movies, some appeal to some people more than others, yeah. right? You like certain styles or genres or story Definitely. types. So yeah. yeah, that's my idea is to give you a feel for what something's going to be, and you can pick and choose which ones. I'm trying to just do good movies. Uh, so. Maybe one day in the far future when there's 2,000 Game of Thrones TV shows, you can focus only on recommending those to people. Like, well, you like <laughs> adventure and sea travel, so I'm going to recommend the Nymeria show and the Sea Snake show. <laughs> I know those were some of the earliest ones, but they're still good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that'll happen in my lifetime, but maybe by then our lifetimes will be extended. Yeah, you know? right. I'll, yes. I'll be a frozen brain, a Futurama head. Yes, my, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks also sure. to Nina Friel. Her, uh, she's been invaluable throughout Valar Reredus, and that is continuing here. We've already had a bunch of great discussions on a lot of different plot topics within the Hedge Knight and within the Duncan Egg trio of novellas. So that's something about this series is there's a lot of rabbit holes, but there's also so much setup to do, right? We have spent enormous amounts of time getting our head wrapped around the world as it stands in the Song of Ice and Fire universe with the timeline in mind, right? We're, we're, we want to know how old Santa is, how old Danny is, how long ago the Greyjoy Rebellion was. There's a ton of dates and places and names. And this isn't that far back, talking about the Hedge Knight, but it's 90 years. That's several generations. So, yeah, there's still Casterly Rock. Yeah, there's still House Lannister. Yeah, there's still House Stark. Yeah, there's King's Landing. But the first names have all changed, right? Instead, well, there's still some Aegons and Darons, but you know what I mean. It's a completely new set of characters, even if so many other things are familiar. So there's a lot to, to talk about. And with so many characters, there's so many connections to be made. Like, is this one, is this character on screen someone's grandfather? Is this, you know, lots of fun questions like that. So that's why we're approaching it the way we are without trying to put barriers on how much time we spend on each portion. We just want to let the material take us where it takes us. And I think the the Hedge Knight is a really appropriate 
book or novella for that type of approach. So also thanks to anyone who's sent questions ahead of time. If you're a patron, you've seen these posts ahead of time. You've had the opportunity to send in some questions. And we have some questions from some of you. Caveat with that, because we're covering things in a different manner, you may ask a question that we don't answer right away. We may save it for a future week because we already have plans for when some of these topics will be discussed. There's a lot of subtopics. We've parsed a lot of it out. Some of them I've set aside to discuss later. For example, we've got a lot of parallels to discuss, a lot of character parallels. I'm going to point them out at the beginning just as an overview, but we're not going to do the deep dives there until the end after we've already consumed all the material. So I think that's going to fit a little better. Dom Tartaglia sends a super chat and says, Sean is my favorite cryptid. <laughs> Which is great. I have a question here, though. What are- Dom is my favorite cryptid. <laughs> so, Sean, what are you drinking, though? People oh, want to know. Oh, good question. This is a mix of um, the naked drink, the protein and greens flavor, along with Mountain Dew. Oh, my gosh. It's very creamy. <laughs> Let me say sweet. that the, the someone guessed that it was cold brew with cream, and it was about the opposite of that. <laughs> um, so that tells you, if you're listening, what that looked like. This is both terrifying and relatively normal for a <laughs> beverage of Sean. So this has been a long time coming, the Hedge Knight, rather. People have wanted us to cover it for a long time. We've wanted to cover it for a long time ourselves, but hey, there's so many topics. We have a rather infinite ongoing list of topics for history of Westeros, and that really hasn't changed because that's how infinity works. It doesn't get smaller. But this is one of the biggest parts of the Song of Ice and Fire extended universe that we've never tackled directly. We've, of course, used the Hedge Knight and companion books, the rest of Duncan Egg novellas as sources innumerable times. I mean, quite a quite a few times. There's a lot of things we can refer to, given that it's so close, relatively speaking, in, in the timeline to A Song of Ice and Fire. All those things I said before about connections, that's part of why. But there's a lot of other reasons, too. The, the history of the Targaryen reign is well covered here, at least parts of it. The Hedge Knight is particularly beloved in the fandom, too. I mean, I love Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire, obviously. But those books don't have a POV character. The World of Ice and Fire is a history book. Fire and Blood is a history book with a lot of story added in. It's sort of like a hybrid. But The Hedge Knight is a story. It's an actual story, right? It's not some hybrid thing, which I like the hybrid things. But as we were just saying when you brought it up, Sean, this is easier to read. It's more familiar in terms of what you expect to pick up when you pick up a book, right? At the end of our coverage, we'll, per- we'll probably talk about them as a whole, right? As a group, the way maybe they change, maybe decide which one of ours is favorite, which one maybe is the best written, things like that. But that's a ways away. That's at the end of all three books. So, you know, another thing I wanted to put in here is that it's just an indication of how amazing George's brain is. Yeah. Like he has this whole world, like he has a whole world in his brain. You know what I mean? Like even thinking about there might be as much knowledge about Westeros, right? as there is Greece, you know? Like, <laughs> that, that's probably not quite true, but th- but it probably is true of certain, like, ancient cultures that George has created a fuller world, especially when you, like, not just know, like, these names and dates and places, but you know, like, not just characters, but their opinions about the names and dates and their perspectives and their 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 life stories and everything. And it, you you just, I feel like reading through all the books, you got to understand it we're only getting the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. He has like the entirety of this world 
and he's revealing pieces of it to us through different characters' perspectives. And you just know how much more of this world he has in his brain, mm-hmm. how much more of the iceberg we're going to get, hopefully get eventually, you know. Yeah, we just, what we, what we really need is to, to, to tap his brain and, you know, mm-hmm. just like squeeze out all the juice. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that for sure. Well said, I totally agree with that. And he's been building it for so long. It's, it's a long time coming. It's true too, what you say about how sometimes fictional universes can be more detailed than the real world because we're allowed to invent the details. Well, we, the royal we, are allowed to invent the details Mm. that in the real world, they would elude us. Um, I'm pretty sure Darth Vader's Wikipedia page is longer than like George Washington's, uh, for example. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, well, there's been more, people have invented Darth Vader. So you like all the detail is there. It's like anytime George Lucas is, wants to add another detail, he's like, well, yes, Darth Vader also had a hangnails. He was troubled by, <laughs> you know, like just any kind of deep, like if George Washington had such He was just going really on, plagued by hangnails, that. I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what turned him to the dark side was all those hangnails? Yeah, that's okay. right, yes. <laughs> he, he mastered the force as a way to cure his hangnail issues. He also really loved the produce aisle, the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> a little guilty pleasure of uh, the sound of that misty spray on the lettuce, you know. <laughs> George Washington might have, but we can never know. We'll never know right, if he exactly. Liked <laughs> You've perfectly captured the type of <laughs> lack of knowledge of real world people that I was going for. Like how how does George Washington feel about the spritzers <laughs> in the produce aisle? We'll never know. We'll never know, and that's a tragedy. This was released in 1998, part of the Legends Anthology, roughly the length of five Dance with Dragons chapters. We talked about, you know, chapters. We don't, it doesn't really have that. But if we were to give it a length, yeah, that's about it. Five Dance with Dragons chapters, which, which if you recall, the average Dance with Dragons chapter was roughly 40 minutes. Five is actually a little less. I'd say five plus for this. It's a little longer than that. But anyway, it's uh, roughly in that zone. This was actually published before A Clash of Kings. I think a lot of people don't know that. It came out about a month before, although most people probably read A Clash of Kings first. You know, the fandom wasn't so huge back then. It wasn't a big release. Like nowadays, if something with George R. R. Martin's name is released (laughs) to the public, everyone knows about it right away. But this wasn't the case in 1998. Things were a little different back then, 23 years ago. It was eventually made into a graphic novel as well. It's quite good. And it's really fun to see that because you get to see a lot of these banners and these sigils and these characters. Like you see Targaryens and things like that. That's pretty fun. Plus there's memories and those memories are put on the pages. So you get to see things like in the second one, there's uh, you get to see Damon Blackfire, for example. So cool stuff like that. And given that it was written alongside A Clash of Kings, there were some ideas George hadn't fully fleshed out. Sean, one thing we went over in Valar Reredus was pointing out when something's mentioned for the first time or when a character or historical note is, is, is notated for the first time. As you noticed yourself, the Blackfires are not mentioned in this story at all. They're sort of referred to obliquely, but not by name. And that's because George hadn't given them a name yet. The first time the name Blackfire appears is in A Storm of Swords. It doesn't appear in Clash of Kings either. It's not a problem, but it's, uh, you know, it's a little piece of trivia, something to take note of, something for us to think about going forward. 
especially when you consider the three books together, one thing that he definitely seems to do all along is lay all this stuff out, which on the surface is both entertaining and overwhelming. So many characters and places and images, all the different heralds and houses and everything. It's almost impossible to like really absorb it the first time through. And that's what we're here for. Um, <laughs> but then by the end, every little detail that ever came up starts to come together and be important. You start to think, oh, wait, that was a thing. He mentioned that. I need to read this again. Yes. You know what I mean? You start to realize how much subtlety and, and foreshadowing and, and symbolism and everything was just there from the beginning and throughout, you know. I feel like if I was an author, that would be pretty much the ultimate compliment. Someone's like, I need to read this again. Or, or if they say, I want to read this again, maybe that's slightly better. But yeah. that, like, that's, that's, that would be very satisfying. Very, uh, yeah, like, I did my job. My work is done. <laughs> well, no, George, actually, your work is not done, but uh, anyway, <laughs> let's not get into that. Well said, by the way. I, I agree with you. I think the style isn't super different. What's different is... The presentation. I mean, we've got a different type of character. That's that's the thing that's really different. He still sees the world in a lot of ways that are similar-ish in, in terms of tone. And like you said, lot, things are very well described. I've been reading a lot of different books lately and having a lot of fun reading lots of different books. But that's something I noticed that a lot of times a different author will spend two or three sentences describing what is in front of the characters, like describing the horizon or the setting. Whereas George would tend to go about twice as much on something like that. And that's not better or worse, but it is notable. And I think you're right that that's, that, that is very much present here as much as it is in the main novels. He might oh, even, yeah, more right. than you realize, use it as a tool for pacing. Oh, it, yeah. When you spend a long time describing this visual, describing that visual, someone going through their memories, describing this visual, all of a sudden they pull the sword, stab it through the nook, and they're like, oh my God, <laughs> what just happened? You know, like, yeah. some, sometimes things can like, suddenly happened really fast when he's been taking his time with the, the pacing and the descriptions. And he's also using those descriptions to add layers of meaning and symbolism and everything. Yeah. Not just to let you know what the sunset looked like. You know, he's mentioning the sunset because it's a reference to Dorn or whatever. Yeah, very well said. You're right. Yeah, he's, he's packing those meanings in there. Um, we Maybe we've missed a layer here and there. That's always possible. And so it's something that keeps us on our toes. The Song of Ice and Fire starts in 298. The prologue might be 297, but, you know, not a big difference either way. It is the year 209 here in the Hedge Knight. So about 89, 90 years before. It's been 80 years since the Dance of the Dragons. So we're almost like at the sandwich point between the dance and the current time, which is that's kind of an interesting thing. And the Targaryen family, of course, was really reduced in size during the Dance of the Dragons. And it took several generations to sort of grow back, right? And they are pretty large again as a family. The dragons, of course, have not. The dragons are gone. That's another thing we'll talk about. But for the most part, it is a time of peace right now. King Daron II is called Daron the Good, and he's in his 25th year of rule. By the end of his reign, he will have sat the Iron Throne for... 25 years. So, oh, hmm, uh-oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, it's only going to be a few months after the end of the story that he passes. And of course, given you know Baylor Breakspear dies here, who is the heir, well, mm, this is basically the end of a good time. Like, this is a nice time in the realm. Relatively speaking, there's always problems. It is Westeros, after all. The bar, So the bar is kind of low for times of peace. This is one of them. The point being, it's about to not be. 
And there's about to be lots of other things happening. There's about to be turmoil, rebellion, all sorts of things. That's part of the setting that we can keep in mind when we're approaching this on reread. We know that, yes, this tragedy is part of the story. Tragedy is coming to the realm. And quite frankly, tragedy is coming at the end of Dunkin' Egg altogether. A lot of these characters you see in this, in this story, like Valar. We see Valar, who I really want to call Valar Reedus. It's two R's, you know? It's like, it's like I'm starting to write that. But that's Breakspear's son, Valar's son, and Mataris is his other son. You may uh, be aware that there was never a King Valar nor a King Mataris. So those two clearly, uh, yeah, part of the oncoming tragedies. Now, Egg is eventually going to be Aegon the Fifth, a.k.a. Aegon the Unlikely. And he's called that because he's the fourth son of a fourth son. What does that mean? Besides a lot of Targaryens dying for him to become king, well, we're going to see a lot of them. The Targaryens that actually die so he can become king, are a lot of them are going to appear in these stories. And we're also going to talk about his immediate family, right? His brother, Maester Aemon. That's the one Targaryen who comes before him in the line of succession that didn't die because, you know, he got to become a maester instead. So, you know, that he kind of dodged that bullet, so to speak. It might be semantics, actually, to say that the Targaryens of this era didn't all kill each other because that is kind of what happened in the dance, right? But uh, because we're talking about the Blackfire Rebellions, which only one of them has happened so far, right? Only the first one, which arguably was the biggest one. They all are arguably Targaryens, in a sense. Like, they're cadet branch of the Targaryens. They're not technically Targaryens, but they all have Targaryen blood. They all emanate from the same bloodline. So you could arguably say they've been killing each other a bit, but hmm. as things stand at the start, page one, 13, as many as 19 living Targaryens, not counting Blackfires, not counting Valarians who married Targaryens, none of that. If they're Last name is Targaryen. That's what I'm talking about. Somewhere between 13 and 19. That's a lot, the right? Blackfires would argue that the Targaryens were killing each other. <laughs> yeah. The Targaryens might not. Good point. <laughs> yes. It's all in where you're standing. That's an, a recurring, overarching aspect to A Song of Ice and Fire is perspective. And you just gave us a good example of that. So 16, or sorry, six of those 13 to 19 are at this tournament. Baylor, Makar, Arian, Daron, Egg, and Valar. Guinevere Greenstone says, what do we know about Egg's life at Summerhall and his motivation to leave home? Are there likely to be Targaryens from outside Makar's immediate family living or visiting there? And how much separation was there from King's Landing at that time? In other words, how much did the King's Landing Targaryens hang out with the Summerhall Targaryens? Let me just do a little setup and then let me get an answer from Sean. First of all, it's... Great question because it allows us to remind folks that Summer Hall isn't yet a ruin. I, I, wildfire hasn't come for it just yet. So it's sort of like the Targaryens have three castles. It, it, of course, this is not like a defensible castle. This is more like a summer home. It's more of a palace than a castle, like the name indicates. But the way it was, the reason it was built, it kind of changed its purpose pretty quickly. The king basically gets the red keep. The heir, which at this time was Prince Baylor, gets Dragonstone, kind of like how Stannis got Dragonstone. Uh, and Makar, though he's the fourth son, got Summerhall. Now, why is that? Why did the fourth son get it? Well, basically because nobody else wanted it. <laughs> Ares is next. Ares the first, not the Mad King. That's later. 
Aries preferred to stay at court, probably because he liked the library. He, our best comparison for Aries the first is the reader, Roderick the reader of the Ironborn. So Summerhall probably didn't have as good of a library. Next brother is Regal. We don't know why he wanted to stay at court, but he was mentally deficient. He had issues, not undefined. I don't know what, to, what the diagnosis is. He was Targaryen. Yeah, so he just, whatever. So the point is, he who knows? We don't know why he didn't want to go to Summer Hall, but he didn't. Uh, Makar also... It's just a silly place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple reasons why Makar would want to go there. He's, a, he's just not a courtly guy. He's more like Stannis. That's something we'll get into later. He's, he's a very similar to Stannis in a lot of ways. Stannis wasn't a big fan of court either. Stannis went to Dragonstone and preferred to be over there. He doesn't like courtliness. He doesn't like all the flattery and the pageantry. That's not for him. The dude's also a war hero, and he had a big family. He had a bigger family than any of his uh, siblings. So he needed more room. He probably didn't want them becoming all courtly either, which we absolutely see that play out at the end here. Though maybe he isn't fully sold on the idea until Dunk presents it to him. Still, that's a pretty big deal. But of course, one of the biggest things is Egg refers to being tormented by his brother. That right there is a good reason to leave home, right? <laughs> Basically, my question for you would be, what do you think from, what can you gather from, from all this and say, like, why would, what, what's your opinion on why Egg would want to stay away from all that? It's probably a few things. I, I was thinking, by the way, like a, along the lines of this, remember in the second book, how much of Rohan's gathered family is around. That's a lot, yeah. But, right? So you can imagine there, Family, you don't always necessarily get along with family, but you kind of have to, especially when you're like at court putting on airs, especially when you're like the little kid. I can just imagine like everyone wanted him to do something and probably none of it was what he wanted to do. Imagine all the different people like, do, or in fact, probably don't do this. Don't do that. Put that down. Just stay out of there. You know what I mean? <laughs> he just wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to explore and have fun and be a kid and you could probably draw some parallels to Arya, maybe. Of you know, I can imagine him not getting much attention, and most of the attention he getting being negative attention. That's a you very know, good they, point. Yeah. N- never mind uh, Arian. J- just that one thing by itself, you know. Uh, uh, that thing by itself does say a lot too. It's like clearly yeah. the rest of the family isn't stepping up to deal with Arian's abuse of his brother. Like, there's no mention of that. Makar, no mention of Egg going to tell his father. No mention of his other brother stepping in. Cause you think like given this family, there would be maybe uh, someone that would do something, not, not Daron cause he's, you know, worthless in that sense, but um, maybe make himself or, but I guess he's just, can't be bothered with that. There's a, a pretty big age difference between the other brothers too, right? Yes. If one of them was like one or two years older, they might hang out and play together, but they're all like, I don't know, five at least years older. They're like He's not too far from Eamon's not, age, but Eamon went off to be a maester pretty early. So yeah, that they may have had yeah. that time together, but Eamon also maybe was more likely to be reading books rather than running around playing in a woods. And they which, were clearly you know, the closest. Yeah. Like the friendliest yeah. to each other. That may have been part of what drove him to leave uh, now that his favorite brother is gone and it's only him and Arian. He's like, uh, get the heck out of here. <laughs> it may not be, it may be pretty straightforward, actually. Dornish Dame adds on, says, I wonder how much contact Egg had with the Dane side of his family and Guinevere Greenstone, who asked the original question, says, maybe they're close. Uh, maybe it's partly because Summerhall is so close to Dorne, right? Summerhall is 
much farther south from King's Landing. It is near the border of Dorne. It's in fact considered to be built on the tri-border. King Daron had it built. It, it was meant to be the marker of the Stormlands, the Reach, and Dorne, like right where the three regions come together. Um, it's sort of a symbol of unity in that sense. Which, as a ruin, it doesn't really work <laughs> so well anymore. <laughs> what does that say? Symbolism, symbolism. But what? We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. That's a great point by Guinevere Greenstones there, that the proximity, it also allows them to be closer to Dorne, which they have Dane uh, heritage. Now, that is yet another example of the Danes just teasing us with what we want to know and what we don't know. As in... The Danes are a really mysterious family. There's a lot more we want to know about them. George had plans for them. He may have changed some of those plans, but he still clearly has more plans for them. So anytime the the name Dane gets mentioned, a lot of times people perk up a little and go, huh? So to be clear, Egg's mother was Deanna Dane. She died very young, so Egg doesn't really have memories of her. So he's not able to speak of her very much. Possibly some trauma wrapped up in that. Like a lot of people don't want to talk about their mother who passed when they were young. That's understandable. Uh, it's not like Dunk is going to press him on that, for example. So I was going to ask, by the yeah. way, that we don't really know anything about Egg's mom. No. And that might be largely just because he doesn't know that much. And I, I agree with that. Yeah. Story is coming from Dunk's perspective. So even if Egg thought about her, we wouldn't get it. But it is something that might answer some of these questions. And it's a disappointed to not know more about. Yeah, it's there is disappointment. We you know it's it's a little it's too often we find ourselves wondering about a motherly character and like what happened to that mother? What's the deal with that mother? It's not unusual for history to leave mothers out. Of course, this is a story we could have more intro here, but it does make sense given the setup that Egg wouldn't have much to say about her because yeah. he probably doesn't know her. Guilty Undertaker points out Egg seems to have been closest in age to his sisters. Yes, absolutely Ray and Dayella are on either side of him age-wise. Uh, and to be so, fair, they could have helped defend him a little, and they could have been picking on him as well. I mean, Egg true. expresses yeah. some like unpleasantness that he he doesn't like them for their love potions. So yeah. it doesn't seem like they're terribly <laughs> close. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's unclear, but that may have been one of the other things he's trying to get away from. He's like, yeah, my brother puts his knife to my balls at night, which I really hate, but I'm not so excited about the love potions my sister gave me either because it's like Jojen pace. I don't know what's in there. I'm not sure I want to know. Definitely don't want to drink it. There's probably a naked drink of Mountain Dew mixed in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she should have put some some sparkling ice in there for carbonation. <laughs> Make that bubbly love potion. It's better that way. So that's a, that's a great point, pacing this all together as far as where that is and the location and the proximity to Dorne. There could be some, some in-laws that, were, that are relevant here. But it's also interesting to point out this connection that a lot of, to, to seal the peace, King Daron married a lot of his family to people in the Reach, people in the, rather people in the Marches, which is still part of the Reach, uh, some of it is, and people in Dorne to bring them into the fold. For example, Baylor Breakspear's wife is Jenna Dondary. That's part of why we find him hanging out with Manfred Dondary later, their in-laws. That's a good summary, I think, of why Egg might have wanted to leave Summerhall. You, you, you mentioned he may have been kind of forgotten about. He's not the firstborn. It's the ones who are higher up in the line of succession, the ones who are going to get more attention. Like you said, Arya is a great example of that. Uh, Jon Snow. Uh, I mean, obviously, Egg's not a bastard, but Jon was, you know, the farther down in the line of succession you are, the more you sort of get treated 
similarly to that, right? The, the, that distinction loses some of its uh, sharpness the farther down you go like that. Different details that come together really nicely. So let's keep all that in mind as we move on. Let's talk about a few of the other regions. King's Landing and Dorne, we're going to talk about plenty during. But let's talk real briefly about what's happening elsewhere, just for the fun of it. In the north, we've got Lord Baron Stark, most likely, because we know he's going to die within a couple of years here. So seems likely enough that he's the one in charge now. Whether he is or isn't, the next most likely would be Rodwell, which, what a great name, Rodwell. Sounds like a porn star. And he would have been Baron's older brother. He never had kids. Baron was married to Laura Royce. This is a very important marriage. The Stark branches, as most of you know, were reunited. There were two major Stark branches united by Rickard, Ned's father, marrying his own first cousin, Liara. Both of those branches emerged from this Baron Laura Royce marriage. So pretty crucial timeline uh, point in the timeline for the Starks here as far as starting off of a, a big group of family members that we're all very familiar with. They may have just been a Skagosi rebellion. Sometime in the 20 years, in, or roughly around there, was a nasty Skagosi rebellion that claimed the life of Barth Blacksword, it would have been. Cool name. We've got Medgar Tully, who is seen in this story, but uh, by the time we have another story, uh, meaning the Mystery Knight, we're going to find out that uh, Medgar is gone. There is no more Medgar, and there's a boy in charge of, of the Riverlands. So clearly, Medgar Tully is not long <laughs> for this world. Uh, there's perhaps some lingering resentment from the Blackfire rebellions in the Riverlands uh, and damage. You know, there's a lot of, that's where a lot of the fighting was, so could still be recovering from that. And of course, the Blackwood Bracken issue is raised here as well. That's going to become important. We're going to have plenty to say about that over the course of our coverage because Egg, of course, marries a Blackwood. In the West, we have Damon Lannister, a.k.a. the Grey Lion. I almost called him the Green Lion. He's Tywin's great-grandfather, right? Tywin's father, Titus, hasn't been born yet, but his grandfather, Gerald, is about 13. Uh, no big stories from out of this time right at the moment, but Dunk was in Lannisport the year before. We know that much. And it, it occurs to me that Dunk might be more comfortable in a place like Lannisport than in a lot of other places because he's from King's Landing. You know, he's from, he's a city boy. Now, he's spent a lot of time in the hedges, but, you know, he's from the city. What, what would you think about that? Like, if you were a hedge dunk, would you think you would hang out near the cities, you know, looking for work there? Or would you hit the road more? Like, setting aside not knowing exactly what would work best. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about that. If Dunk would rather be you know, this is like a, a broad statement, but I, I, in my mind, more into the countryside and the, maybe the more into the north you get, the more honorable things, more Spartan, I guess. I don't know how to say it. Whereas in the city, where Dunk might feel like a big, strong, honorable warrior might feel better in the north than in a city. But Dunk being from the city might be more comfortable in the busy streets and the but maybe his perspective will have changed from having left that. And yeah. he doesn't seem to think of it too fondly. You know, maybe he's no, you're right. to be done with it. I mean, he was from Flea yeah. Bottom. That's not exactly the best part of the city. In fact, it's the worst yeah. part of the city. So he not, might not like it. He may have the familiarity, but that doesn't mean he's like, it's where he wants to be. So that's two different And even if he there. got into, quote unquote, better parts of the city, he might be quickly disenchanted when you realize that everyone's 
angling against each other. You know yeah. what I mean? There's not really that much honor. Most of the nights are just being are just being paid to guard someone's merchant shop. And not that that isn't even valuable, but it just isn't like his idealistic vision of what a knight is. You know? Yeah, it's a good point. Maybe yeah, maybe it's it's hard to be a knight in the city. <laughs> You could say, maybe. At least uh, his his style of night. Good point, good point. So, in the Stormlands, Lionel Baratheon, of course, the Laughing Storm, he's not the Lord of Storm's End in this story. He is the heir, but he is going to be the Lord of Storm's End. And he's going to be a big figure in history. There's some really famous art of him in the world of Ice and Fire. Uh, Iron Islands, they're not much a part of this story at all. I don't even think they get mentioned. They certainly are going to come up in the next one, indirectly. The guy who's running things when they do make their moves shortly here in about a year or so is Lord Dagon. So when you're named after an ancient undersea deity or monster from the Cthulhu mythos, you know you're uh, it's pretty serious. So he's probably in charge or he's about to be. Maybe his father's about to die and that's going to enable him to take over and he's immediately going to start doing stuff. The veil is, well, we don't know. No Lord Aaron, no House Royce here. And we do have Humphrey Harding, that important character in this story. He is from the Vale. He apparently beat Lord Aaron in a melee the year before. It is pretty far. That might be why. I mean, we know Northerners don't go to tournaments much anyway. But even if they did, this tournament is super, super far away. Let's go ahead and discuss where it is. If you if you look at the map, go to Highgarden. Find Highgarden on the map. And then just go straight east or right. And you'll find Ashford almost right away. So you, you just follow the Mander up its tributary, the Cockleswent, which is a great word, Cockleswent. And there you go, Ashford. So it's uh, it's pretty easy to find on the map. Most of the maps have it because it's it's a notable location, even though it's not a super important location. It's loca- It's important because it's been a part of stories like this. By the way, what with Lady Went, I'm just picturing her like, Cockles Went. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Cockles Went. That is a great word. <laughs> Chickens Went, <laughs> Hens Went, Roosters, yeah. <laughs> of course, last but not least, we have the Reach, Leo Tyrell, a.k.a. Leo Longthorn. Now, Leo Tyrell, he pulled a Walder Frey in the Blackfire Rebellions. He was like, oh, you know, I was getting my army together to show up and fight. And, you know, it was all over by the time I did that. They were like, yeah, but who are you going to fight for? Oh, you know, I was the, the loyal. I was going to be loyal. Yeah, I was going to be on the winning <laughs> side. Uh, this guy's a highly successful tournament knight. But is he a good fighter? Yeah, I don't know. We, we, that's, those two things don't necessarily go together as we have been introduced to very early in A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, here's a little Easter egg or a little dot connecting. Tyrion tries to get a rise out of Oberyn in A Storm of Swords by bringing up Willis Tyrell. The Dornishman did not react as expected. I had a letter from Willis not half a year past. We share an interest in fine horse flesh. He has never borne me. <laughs> Shalani, you made me laugh. <laughs> it sounds like they're talking about eating it. You're like, yeah, we love to eat fine horse flesh. <laughs> Medium rare is my favorite. Okay, I'm going to not look at Sean now. <laughs> we share an interest in fine horse flesh. He has never borne me any ill will for what happened in the lists. I struck his breastplate clean, but his foot caught in a stirrup as he fell, and his horse came down on top of him. 
I sent a maester to him afterward, but it was all he could do to save the boy's leg. The knee was far past mending. If any were to blame, it was his fool of a father. Willis Tyrell was green as his surcoat and had no business riding in such company. The fat flower thrust him into tourneys at too tender an age, just as he did with the other two. He wanted another Leo Longthorn and made himself a cripple. There are those that say Sir Loris is better than Leo Longthorn ever was, said Tyrion. Renly's little rose? I doubt that. A couple things funny about this. Really, I was going to say one thing funny about this. There's actually several things funny. Horse flesh aside, first of all, Oberyn just has a mocking name for everyone, kind of like Stannis. Remember, the Hedge Knight was written before this. So George wrote this dot to connect to the Hedge Knight, not the other way around, right? The Hedge Knight was written first. We also see a similar example here. We have Harding, who gets his leg badly wounded because of Arian's well, dishonor, <laughs> putting it mildly, just, yeah, I'm going to just stab your horse instead. Uh, and of course, that wasn't your foot getting caught in a stirrup. That was your horse getting impaled and it falling on top of you. So a little different in terms of the cause, but it's a similar injury. And uh, I guess this Harding fellow, just a little little tougher, he, he's like, hey, I can't, my leg is worthless, but get me on that horse. I can still joust. <laughs> Ooh, that is... That's a tough man, but unfortunately he didn't. Uh, I drank some milk of the poppy. For yeah, that. and then he gets then he gets a lance in the groin and dies. So you know that's still fun. <laughs> so as I said, the first Blackfire rebellion's already occurred. It's been a while, thirteen years. So of course, Damon and his eldest sons are dead. Of the other three great bastards, Bittersteel has yet to form the Golden Company. That's coming in about three years, and he's probably in the second sons at this point. That's kind of fun to hear about, right, Sean? That that the second sons were around back then, and we got. Someone like Bitter Steel in there. And I don't know if you remember that chapter yeah. from uh, Dance of Dragons where that gets mentioned. Uh, even Oberyn was in there and some other people like that. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool, huh? I, I just like the idea of a company called the Second Son. That's a neat idea to me. Yeah, right. And they all really are. Like, Oberyn is a Second Son. Yeah. Bitter Steel was not really Second Son, but it's. it's but, and not, not a First Son a first doesn't son. roll off the tongue as well <laughs> as. Uh, <laughs> the not a First Son. <laughs> Brendan Rivers at this point, a.k.a. Bloodrip, most likely master of whispers to King Daron. He's going to be hand to King Aerys and King Makar, but he wasn't hand for Daron. He was trusted. Daron is the one who gave him Dark Sister, uh, apparently. And Shiera Seastar is probably there as well. She's still probably turning lots of heads. Uh, of course, it sounds like she did that her whole life. And uh, But Bittersteel's gone, so there's no longer like some fight over her, but maybe other people are fighting over her. Any, in any case, she's probably still around. Now, of key importance, of course, is that Dornish connection. I already brought up some of the connections, but there is the sister of King Daron, Daenerys. So the original Daenerys, the one that, not the first Daenerys, but the first one that's mentioned in the story. There's actually a, another Daenerys that comes along in Fire, in Fire and Blood, but she dies really young. So this is the one who the water gardens are made for. Yet another dot connecting to the latter books. The Feast for Crows is when we're introduced to the Water Gardens. And of course, Darren himself is married to Maron's sister, Mariah Martell. So you have Daron married to Mariah Martell and Maron Martell married to Daenerys Targaryen. This double marriage is the foundation for the new peace that seeks to make Dorne a permanent part of the Kingdom of the Iron Throne. Had the Blackfire Rebellion been lost, that peace may have been shattered. But this double marriage has been in place for, for decades now. Now, there's these unions have produced heirs, and these heirs are set to take over soonish. 
Now, doesn't that sound awfully familiar? Weren't we just on the cusp of that in Song of Ice and Fire? Ten year, before Robert's Rebellion, anyway? A half-Dornish, half-Targaryen, or a Dornish-Targaryen marriage had been sealed. And um, they already had kids. <laughs> and there was a Prince Aegon who was half-Dornish, half-Targaryen, was going to take the throne eventually. And now, all of a sudden, you have a possibly real, possibly not... Uh... Yeah, it just all got blown up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So this is the same, like, uh, basically, a son of Rhaegar and Elia Martell, setting aside the likelihood that he's fake, ostensibly has the same heritage as Baylor Breakspear. Did that, uh, did that occur to you? Did you notice that when you were reading this, this, this Dornish-Targaryen connection? or did I don't know if it? I specifically thought about that connection or parallel, but I, I have noted a sort of a theme of... Uh trying to keep Dorne in the fold. Dorne was like the last to join in several different marriages between Targaryens and Dornish. Yeah, never attacking them never worked. It never worked out. But yeah. marriages, well, that didn't work out either, but it worked out better. So, yeah, that's, that's really important. You wonder if George is making a statement there, like, you no, know, these, you know, they kept trying to conquer them and they just kept fighting back. But when they tried to make it more on even footing, make, make them, you know, bring them into the fold as equals... Well, that had a lot better results. But it still didn't truly it, work. It still didn't truly yeah. work because no, other but they're people. part of the realm. So yeah. it, it did the it, what it needed to do. It didn't self-destruct. We'll put it that way. Other yeah. people messed it up. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, I find, a sort of an irony that I maybe even can make some sense of, but that there's like this drive to get Dorne to be part of the Seven Kingdoms. And maybe there's some skirmish from Dorne into the Reach. I don't know how much of that there was, but it seemed to me like there's a lot more of attacking into Dorne to try to make them submit, right? Well, uh, let me meantime, jump in. For in terms of large-scale okay. invasions, you're right. In terms of small-scale invasions, it would be the Dornish invade attacking the Reach because the the huge mountain passes protect Dorne from invasion um, and, and provide a quick escape route for raiders. But in terms of large-scale invasions, absolutely, you're right. Yeah, like... Only big armies. Well, have gone on in. the flip side, it seems like the Iron 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 Islanders <laughs> constantly are attacking the North and the West, and maybe Pretty others much. too. But the Targaryens like are almost oblivious to it, right? They, I don't think there was ever this concerted effort to go put them in their place or defend Casterly Rock from them or whatever else. There's, they're like, uh, they're going to do what they're going to do, but we got to get Dorne. We got to get Dorne. You know, there's not really an effort from the Lannisters or the Starks, you know, who are on the border with the Iron Islands. You might think that they would want to broker a peace. You're right. They did somewhat look east and south a lot more than they looked west. Because it's their borders. It's what's closer to them. It's what is affecting yeah. them more often. You know, right? King's Landing on uh, the other side. Yes. Yeah. It's like I <laughs> ah, let our vassals deal with that. You guys are your great houses. You can't deal with some Ironborn. Yeah. Come on. Uh, after the Hedge Knight, we're going to see people say Bloodraven is focused too much on the east. He's too worried about the return of the Blackfires. Meanwhile, the Ironborn are you know ravaging the Western Shores. So you're absolutely right that this is kind of a long-standing issue of focus where the a lot of different kings have been more focused on adding to the realm than stabilizing and solving the problems that are already there. They'd rather be remembered as conquerors than people who made peace. Yeah, and you know, even though they want to seemingly own everything on the continent, they don't care about what's way up north because it's yeah. useless to them. 
Yeah, Iron Allen's yeah. is, is poor. It's a great point. Yeah, like that. That's a fantastic point. There, there's less value and in settling that. North of the Wall is also like eh, doesn't count. Yeah, you know? <laughs> they're not as interested in that. You're totally right. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now, in current time, this fusion, this attempted peacemaking, we have one of the exceptions. Darren the Good is one of those exceptions who does not want to be remembered for conquest. He apologized. He he continued the apology tour started by Baylor Breakspear. I'm sorry, Baylor the Blessed, which is part of why he named his firstborn Baylor because he loved Baylor the Blessed so much. Baylor was very dedicated to peace. Baylor apologized for his older brother, Daron the First's invasion of Dorne. And here we have Daron the Second also carrying that on, saying, Yes, we don't want to invade you. We want to be your friends. We do this double marriage, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of resentment over that. As we said, maybe you could make a case that Rhaegar really did self destruct some of that. But setting that aside, they, people, a lot of people wanted these marriages to work because it would lead to peace. But a lot of people wanted the, stat, the former status quo to return, which was enemies. You want to be enemies with Thorne because that's how you make a name for yourself. You need to have someone to fight. They have this long martial tradition of being warriors of the marches, knights of the marches, defending the, this region against Dornish raiders. This has been the state of affairs for literally thousands of years. It's the modern world, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Who do we study in history? We study the conquerors, the, 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 the rulers, the murderers. You know, mm-hmm. those are the people that, for better or worse, get known and remembered and have statues built. I think we're finally starting to come around to a more uh, civilized mindset in society, but it is uh, a disappointing piece of humanity. That we, yeah, know, that we that celebrate the, the conquerors. Celebrate war and war leaders. You know? Yeah, you're right. That's it's certainly consistent with how a lot of the real world, real world operates. So that's a good thing to bring up there, Sean. So there's a lot of resentment. That's part of why you don't see but it was this tournament is Ashford Meadow. It's not that far from Dorne, right? We just established that. But how many Dornish are here? Tanzel, the puppeteer. That's her and her people, right? That's pretty much it. There's not a lot of Dorn, the Dornish folk aren't like, yeah, let's go to that tournament in Ashford. They're not, they're not close enough yet. The the cultural barriers haven't been torn down yet. The, too, too many of the people who are still alive were raised to hate the Dornish. Too many of the Dornish who were, you know, who are still alive in these days, they were raised to hate the Reachmen and the Stormlanders. And their fathers, like many of them, fought and died against them. So you go from a generation that that had forever fought them and did fight them to another gen- the next generation that was told to hate them but didn't actually fight them very much. And now you have a generation that's just got this distant memory of, uh, they just don't like them anymore. You know, and it's like, eh. But eventually it's going to turn into just sort of a, sort of a low simmering prejudice rather than a, these are our ancestral enemies that we must kill, you know. But it, that's the kind of thing that doesn't just fall off. A great yeah. example in the current story of that is the extreme difficulty the Night's Watch brothers have in accepting the wildlings as allies. Similar parallel, John's struggling to get them. John's maybe dare on the good here, trying to get the realm to accept this, but he doesn't have as many tools to make it happen. There's not as many marriages to make, but he did make one, right? The Magnar of Fenn and uh, Alice Karstark. I suppose there is a parallel there, but I don't feel like it's as strong or as focused on, you know, like there is like a, they're not as clearly divided by a, a massive wall you know yeah, what i mean that's true. and they they don't have like a different language and a di- i mean there are differences in their culture but they still have like 
a king and knights and you know they still yeah have a, a similar foundation for their culture. the free folk are like hundreds of different small cultural groups where Dorne right. is yeah. has a lot of different cultural groups but they're not nearly that disparate they've been more separated for more time yeah. and more geographically and, and and more at odds with the people on the other side too you know, yeah more. you see some of the some of those connections like stannis is trying to bring them into the realm stannis is like look you guys can be subjects of the realm but it's happening under very extreme circumstances. Like if Stannis was king in in a time of peace, would he do this? You know, he he just needs more men. He's kind of desperate. He might, he might do it. I'm not, I don't know for sure, but he's definitely doing and it now. And it's kind of questionable. Of Stannis is being, I, I want to say Stannis is being questioned as much as John, and that's not quite true, but that's partly because Stannis will burn you to death <laughs> if you don't do it. Yeah, you know? John's not forcing anyone to change their religion, nor, which is also an important thing here. This is something that helps Dorne and reunite with the rest of the realm as they share the same religion. That's a huge connection point. Like, I don't know if Baylor the Blessed, who you know, was the Septon King, would have been quite as excited about merging the realms if they worship yeah. Werewoods or something, right? Or if they worship R'hllor. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind as well. These cultural... You're, you're very right to bring the differences in culture as a, something that is not the same. Some of those things are the same. Like, there's some northern cultural traditions that, that free folk would agree with, you know, um, more of like making your own decisions. The, he who swings this, passes the sentence, belief in the old gods, but you're right, the differences are much larger. Like there happens to be this natural barrier between Dorne and the Reach or the rest of the realm or whatever, but there was a wall built to keep out the northern, the, the wildlings or whatever. So Yeah. I've, I've worked out a long list of scenes. So we're going to kind of go through these scenes they're like micro scenes. Um, like a scene could, for example, would be him burying Sir Arlen. Then the next scene is him meeting Egg. And then they see the banners. Then there's the pavilions, the puppet show, etc. So lots of little micro scenes here. Scott had his uh, oh, Facebook yes, poll in the um, group that was asking whether we think Dunk was actually knighted or not. And the answers are quite resounding. 69 people say he wasn't knighted. Nice. Four people say he was knighted. So you four people keep on believing. Five? Is that you, Sean? Make that five. five. Make that five. Yeah. <laughs> Sean's going to hold that <laughs> candle. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Like, Scott, um, he, I remember he messaged me this uh, not too long ago. So the poll wasn't up very long. That's why there's only 73 votes. But still... You know, it doesn't need to be up very long. We can see the, the huge disparity there, right? <laughs> yeah, we're just going to yeah. get a flood of, of pro-night dunks yeah. <laughs> in there. I don't think so. <laughs> we could probably start talking for that and go a whole hour right now. I don't know if we want to put that off for another topic or touch on it slightly right now. I or... think let's not. But what we'll do is we'll let people know this and we want to talk about. So folks, get your arguments ready for next time. We'll talk about whether Dunk was really knighted the scene where he declines tonight, Raymond, where he hesitates, maybe that's when the best time for it will be. But we'll we'll allow a little more setup time first. So folks, send in your thoughts on why you think he was or wasn't knighted and give us your details, give us your logic, give us your reasoning and give us your guesses. I will say um, on my third reread, that was like the focus of my read was like looking for evidence. And I found lots of evidence on both sides. I think I mentioned to you, Aziz, that I think like a pro-con list, I found a few more uh, indicators that he was, but maybe the ones that he aren't are a little stronger. And I'm not even like adamant one way or the other. I just think it's, I don't think it's a 
shut and close case. There's a lot of ways it maybe could have been, but it didn't count, or that he isn't necessarily lying about it, even if he wasn't really, or you know, different. We, again, we could talk about it forever. But yeah, good comment by Palavan here says the co- the puppet show by the two Dornish women with the knight killing the dragon could be a very popular story in Dorne from the decades of fighting with Targaryens and driving them away and somewhat winning. Yeah, actually resisting the Targaryens. You'd think Dorne would be proud of that, given no one else resisted the Targaryens for mm-hmm. so long. No one else resisted the dragons. Because even when they were brought to heel temporarily by Daron the first, there were no dragons, no literal dragons involved. Uh, so that's a great point. Yeah, I, I, you would think that they would be, you know, that would be a national point of pride. We know that the, what is it, House um, Tolland has a dragon sigil that was designed after the conquest in honor of their encounter with Aegon, the conqueror himself. Yeah. With Rhaenys, most particularly. Yeah, and then Rhaenys as well. <laughs> they shot her down. That's, uh, you, you know they'd think of that one too and thinking of their successes. Which um, brings us to this other question from JT Lambo Gaming. Do we think the puppet show is a depiction of Dorne taking out the dragon with a scorpion? I do not. I think that's too on the nose. It would upset a lot of people. I think what uh, that that it would still hearten Dornish, but that it was a tale from many, yeah, many eons ago. I wonder if in Dorn they're a little more aggressive with the depiction. Yeah, but I think you're right that given how Arian reacted, you got to figure it could provoke. If it was more provocative, it might provoke someone less easily provoked than Arian, and that would be a big risk to take. So it's possible, but I think maybe they're just trying to conjure that image. Like, a Dornish person's going to see this, and it's going to make them think of Baraxes, but you don't want to be that blatant with it. So, there might be some who would put that puppet show on less innocently. You know, they, uh, not maybe Tansel and her troop might not have been doing it, but there might be some who would, it would be a jab, you know, at the Targaryens to put that show on. But if they put it up a notch or two, then other Targaryens might also, they might have been arrested, you know. Well said, yeah. And of course, we'll come back to this point a little later. We have a parallel to discuss in modern times with puppet shows and how things go for people that <laughs> aren't careful with who they uh, might offend amongst the powerful I want to read this off real quick. Just a quick list of characters who we're going to get into deeper detail before, but I wanted to set it up now so y'all can start thinking about it. If you want, start letting it percolate in your mind, let it marinate on this for a while. Mostly parallel characters, but also a few uh, parallel situations and also some inversions. Starting off with Daron, the Drunken, and Tyrion. Huge group of parallels there. Dunk and Brienne. I think a lot of you were well aware of that one already, but you may not have caught all the different examples. Then Dunk and Duck. Then likewise, Egg and Young Griff. Aegon and Fagon, you could say. Arion and Euron. Then Arion and Joffrey and Viserys. Those similarities are very similar to each other. So it's almost like a triangle of awful princes. Hmm. Makar and Stannis. I mentioned that one already, but we'll get deeper in that one later. Baylor. Breakspear and Rhaegar Targaryen as well. So there's uh, a lot of good examples there, a lot of parallels, a lot of things to think about. As far as inversions and comparisons, Dunk and the Mountain, Dunk and Sandor, Dunk and Jamie, and then Manfred Dondarrion and Beric Dondarrion. That's a much smaller parallel, but that's one I wanted to highlight as well. Then also we're going to have things like Brienne versus Loras and Dunk versus Arian, how the duels are similar. Brienne versus the Brave Companions yeah. that 
it was sort of a, a a no chance, no choice. You know, Dunk knows he can't just go beat a prince and all his guards and the whole Targaryen family. But he just does it anyway, just charges in. Like, yep. this is just what I have to do. Just like Bran knew she was outnumbered, outarmed, and, well, I still have to do the right thing. Yep. And- Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Respect. And then Nina also points out that this is also somewhat similar to, to before the No Chance, No Choice scene. There's also the scene outside the gate at Maidenpool where the soldiers are basically having their way with these farmers and they're about to do much worse than that. And it's, I think it's a deliberate reference because what is the food that they're bringing in? Eggs. <laughs> dunks. Yeah, dunks. They're bringing in oh, dunks. Oh, eggs. <laughs> <laughs> keep an eye out all that for that, folks. When you're reading, if you're doing more rereading, keep all those parallels in mind. You might catch one that we haven't caught. Uh, I've already caught a few going through here that I hadn't noticed before that I'll be sharing with you as we get farther in. Our first quote is the actual first couple of lines. The spring rains had softened the ground, so Dunk had no trouble digging the grave. He chose a spot on the western slope of a low hill, but the old man had always loved to watch the sunset. Another day done, he would sigh, and who knows what the morrow will bring us, eh, Dunk? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting mix of sad and, you know, that, but that last line is, is so optimistic, so it's a real mix of but it also really sets up the whole Dunkin' Egg, right? That is really the, uh, you could say that's a, a thesis statement of Dunkin' Egg. Who knows what tomorrow will bring us, eh, Dunk? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, you, you get the idea that uh, Sir Arlen was a, a really good uh, mentor, father figure, you know, for Dunk, among other things included. He, he seemed to have a positive outlook on life, despite probably living kind of a tough life, you know? Sir Arlen seemed like he was usually... I don't know, in modern terms, living paycheck to paycheck, right? Yes. But he still was happy with his life and uh, had a sense of uh, honor, a code that he lived by and that that fulfilled him as much as money or a castle or whatever else would have, you know? Yeah. One quick tangent I want to point out just on my mind as I'm like reading one of these quotes, I will never do as well as Harry Lloyd. Oh man, he's <laughs> One of good. my reads was the audiobook, oh. and... I highly recommend it. Even if you read the actual book, listen to the audio book. It's so, he is so good. I, I, I even went on, on uh, Audible, I guess, to see what else he's done. I'm going to listen to Great Expectations next. He's done Great Expectations, he, really. You're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is really good. You're right about that. Just in case people have forgotten if that name's familiar, but you can't quite place it, that's the actor who played Viserys, who was... Yeah. Who was amazing? I mean, as Viserys, well, like he it's hard to imagine having a positive thought about that individual, <laughs> but, but his role as the reader of uh, of Dunkin' Egg has totally supplanted for me his role as Viserys. Yeah, right. There's some people that really hope. It seems like maybe a long shot, but there's some hope that he could be one of or a or the reader for the Winds of Winter because uh, obviously Roy Dutrice has passed, so it won't be him. I would love it if he did. Got to find somebody. Very early on, we have a couple of recurring themes that permeate both the story and perhaps the quite a bit of Dunk's life and Egg's life as well, in part. Both main characters start with false pretenses regarding their rank. Egg, like, dramatically undersells his, of course, (laughs) because he's the prince of the blood. (laughs) Dunk is just a little fib, like, yeah, he was going to knight me. He changes... 
He changes, he was going to knight me until he did knight me, or he really was knighted, and he's not exaggerating anything, really. So there's that possibility as well. A couple of great notes from Nina here. For one, this opening reminds the reader of Dunk's own eventual death. Let's not forget this is all going to end in tragedy. Maybe you don't want to call it a tragedy because they have full lives. Like during that, you know, just because your life ends badly doesn't make your whole life a tragedy. So let, let me put that caveat out there. I'm not, I'm not trying to bring the whole room down here. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> Summerhall 259, 50 years from now. It's 209 here. So 259 is when that happens. 50 years. Long way. 50 years is a long time. Dunk's going to be in his 60s. But it is a reminder that that is the only way this can end. The only way any life ends is in death. That's, as the onion would, would tell you from its statistics department, World death rate holding steady at 100%. <laughs> the author is, is, and he's reminding us that that's just how it goes. Like, George doesn't pull those kind of punches. George says, you know, I want people to have the realism of war, the realism of life and death, all that. And that's part of this. She also writes, in one way, Dunk's death couldn't be more different than Arlen's. Instead of heavy rains and damp winds, we've got flames that grew out of control, that burned so hot. We don't know exactly the, the specific details of the circumstances, but yeah, wildfire, burning, conflagration, castle collapse, whatever. It's, yeah, very much, very different than outdoors in the rain, right? This is indoors in the fire. So George is nothing if not very consistent with crossing off all the connecting points here. And it's really quite impressive how he covers so many bases. But also age-wise, I think uh, Dunk is probably gonna out, Dunk is certainly gonna outlive Arlen. That's an interesting little tidbit because it looks like Arlen is closer to 60 than 50, but we know Dunk is going to live, is going to get closer to 70 than 60. It also foreshadows the end of this story, right? This, it begins with a funeral, it ends with a funeral. And also the two characters are very different, which is another important point of the story. Comparing the life of a hedge knight or just his foot as he thinks about it at the end to a prince of the blood to the hand of the king to the future king. Like, how do you make this comparison? And this, this same comparison is wrought in these funerals. Baylor Breakspear has this burned wearing a black velvet tunic with, tunic with the three-headed dragon picked out in scarlet thread upon his breast and a heavy gold chain with his sword sheathed by his side. A thin golden helm on his head committed to the flames like all members of the hallowed house Targaryen. Meanwhile, this dude is like thrown in a mud hole and Dunk can't even afford to bury him with his stuff. Like, he's like, no, I can't. I can't put this sword in here with yeah. you, man. I need this to live. And no one, and no one, Dunk's like, I can't feel bad for him. This I mean, doesn't fit, but I'll keep it anyway. The Targaryens are like, those are treasures on the fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right? What an incredible <laughs> dichotomy. And this is one of the things that I think that is pretty clear if you're reading it for the second time. You may not notice it the first time because you're, over, you're overwhelmed with detail and story and newness. It, it bookends the story very well, very effective. It's one of the reasons why I think maybe this is the best of the three stories, even though it's uh, lacking in some of the fully fleshed out world building. One thing I, I thought about when I read Nina's notes, though, was that um, I don't know how much he intended that in the first place. He very well may have, knowing how big a picture he seems to have of this whole story. But when this book was written, we didn't know anything about how Dunk was going to die. And Great point, yeah. some people, for example, my dad just read the Duncan Egg series 
but it hasn't read or seen, doesn't know anything else about any of Martin's writings. I mean, he's aware like Game of Thrones exists or whatever, but so to him, there was, there's no sort of parallel or foreshadowing to how Dunk is going to end up. In fact, I'm only superficially aware of something happened at Summer Hall and they died in a fire. I don't know the details. Of that. Well, so you, you, probably by the end of no the podcast, I'll have it all. But, no, no, you're, you're actually okay. right there. With, like that's, that is about it. We know that some sort oh, okay. of conflagration that involved wildfire, maybe like why it started is that's a whole nother topic. But as far as the trigger, what killed them? Yeah, that's it. it it's, it's shadowed in some mystery, but uh, so you've got the gist of it for sure. Okay. But yeah, I definitely like the book ending and the, 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 the contrast of the nature of the, the funerals. I, oh, I think quick that is outstanding. Question. Aziz just said that he thinks the hedge knight is the best. Is Do you agree, Sean? You don't want to get into it know. right now. Wait well, until how about this? Maybe yeah. pick your best now and then we'll ask you again way at the end. Yeah. When we're done with all three books. We'll see if your opinions change. It'd be a good... That's, we'll bookend the books. Oh, I just can't pick one. I, I can, I'll try to briefly explain thoughts for each, right? Okay. One is the second and third it's almost fair because they're building on the first, yeah, right? Yeah. Like if you just pick one, but like if you just read the Sworn Sword without the knowledge of the one before, I don't know if it would seem as good. Maybe it would, but it's hard to know because I didn't do that, you know? And another factor is that the third one is just longer. So there's more material too. Yeah. It's significant. The second one's a little bit longer, but the third one's significantly longer. I do feel like in the third one, I had this feeling of like, oh my God, this is genius, the way everything came together. <laughs> but some of that needed the first two books to happen. Yeah. Another factor is the second book, I appreciate the female perspective that we get there. I mean, it wasn't actually a POV, but it was a significant female character involved, which stands out from a lot of other knighthood-type medieval stories that are just about the warrior, which obviously are still good, and Martin does a good job with representation overall, but I think the middle one does it best. And I think, just my prediction is that you probably like the second one for its, for, you know, it being kind of more mundane, more um, lower stakes, you know, just more of yep, a day yep. in the life of this area. Yeah. Even when it did get to the bigger stakes, it was still just, the stakes were still just like, seven commoners you know what i mean yeah. and egg was worried about them and i really liked the egg kind of pieced together that these people are probably going to die and not for a good reason and and i i really did like that moment i the fact is they're all so good like even if i pick a favorite it's one is 9.82 one is 9.81 <laughs> and one is 9.8 you know yeah, it's, yeah. It's, they're really good cool well i'm glad you feel that way and one last point from nina here dunk buries arlen on a western hill because he loved to watch the sunset. It's a nice representation of the end of this stage of Dunk's journey. Sun has set on his time as a squire. It's time for a new day for Dunk as Sir Dunk in the Tall, Hedge Knight. You know, I can't believe I didn't think of this joke before, but he buries Arlen on a hill? King of the hill, anyone? <laughs> oh, that's right. Wow. Uh, if oh, you wow. don't realize the town that they live in is Arlen, Texas. <laughs> yeah. Arlen, Texas, yeah. So... <laughs> By the way, I want to give a shout out to patron who goes by the name Sir Zach of House Wild. He asked for a little assistance with his nickname, which is normal for us to do with, with patrons. We help with nicknames. Sometimes we make them up for you. And he wanted something to do with shredding because Zach Wild's a famous guitarist. And so I was looking it up. I was like looking up for reasons. And I was looking at Zach Wild's Wikipedia page. And I see that he's, he's known for his spiral imagery on his guitars. He's so many of his guitars have spirals. So I was like, okay, let's call, let's call this, let's put the word spiral in this title. 
And then I'm like, wait a minute, this, this spelling of wild, there's a house wild in the Song of Ice and Fire, right? They're, it was spelled the same way, which is W-Y-L-D-E. So it's a very unusual spelling of wild. Uh, so I'm looking it up. I'm looking at Wikipedia. I'm like, whoa, House Wild in A Song of Ice and Fire, their sigil is a spiral. It, no way. So I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Is George putting an Easter egg for Zach Wild in here? So I'm like, I need more supporting evidence. We've got the weird wet name spelling and we've got the spiral. That's pretty strong, but that's not enough. So I go look at more into Zach Wild's Wikipedia page. Where is Zach Wild born? Bayon, New Jersey. Where is George R. Martin born? Buy on New Jersey. Mm, okay. <laughs> that kind of seals the deal for me now. I'm like, we got three unusual, very specific details. So House Wild, I'm calling it right here, y'all. House Wild is a reference to Zach Wild, guitarist for Zach Sabbath, Black Label Society, Ozzy Osbourne, all these bands. Pretty famous dude. Weird dude, too, but I think we really saw him. Did we, yeah. see, we saw him. Didn't we, we did. Yeah. We, saw, yeah. we saw Zach Sabbath, which is his Black yeah. Sabbath cover band. It was fantastic. He just was noodling guitar through everything. Like he like was like behind his head, under like jumped into the audience. He was still playing the whole time, yeah. no matter what. It was great. Yeah. And, the, and those Black Sabbath songs really lend themselves to that kind of just going off and grooving and soloing. So yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> one of the real big, big reasons folks like Duncan Egg sometimes even more than A Song of Ice and Fire, is that we get the perspective of non-nobles, right? The only small folk slash noble commoner characters we get in A Song of Ice and Fire are prologue characters. And of course, they all die pretty quickly. And Davos, who's like, was a commoner, right? He still has that background. He thinks on it, but he's now operating amongst nobles, doing noble stuff, doing the duties of a noble. That's the, the region he operates in. This is two dudes on the road. One guy has a rope belt. I mean, it's so different, right? <laughs> and it's expressed partly in this quote. When he tries to say words for Arlen, his heart is in the right place. His, heart, his, his heart's totally in it. But, well, the quote says it all. There ought to be a septum here to say some prayers over him, but he only has me. The old man had taught Dunk all he knew of swords and shields and lances, but had never been much good at teaching him words. I'd leave your sword, but it would rust in the ground, he said, last apologetic. Gods will give you a new one, I guess. I wish you didn't die, sir. He paused, uncertain. What else needed to be said? He didn't know any prayers, not all the way through. The old man had never been much for praying. Right? Like, the dichotomy comes pretty quickly, not long after. Egg knows how to ride a horse, knows how to ride it well, knows a lot about horses. He's just an eight-year-old kid or nine-year-old, whatever he is. He's well-educated already. He's already far beyond Dunk in education. Uh, and that's just how it is. Like when Dunk's education is entirely at the hands of Sir Arlen and his life experiences. Yeah, no Septon. That's what there would have been. There would be a Septon. He's, he's exactly right. That is what you would normally have at a funeral. And that is, when we see Baylor's funeral, it's, as we've already said, it's super fancy. There's a bunch of people there, mourners. It's super different. You know, one thing, uh, it's actually from the second book, but it was interesting that Dunk pointed out to Egg. He's like, look, you know a lot about stuff you've been taught about heraldry and history, but these villagers, they know stuff you don't know. You don't know what, which, you know, berries are poisonous. You don't know how to plow the, the field for beans. So, don't don't judge them too hard. You can learn from them and they can learn from you. 
he might not be good with words, right? He didn't learn to read, doesn't know all the prayers, but he's still, he's, he's street smart, if you will. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and so they do have a lot so they can teach each other. He's head smart. <laughs> oh my God, Sean, I reached over to unmute myself to make that joke. And I was like, ah, I'm not going to make it. Heather of streets, that's great. Leave it to me. I'll make any joke. That's really good. <laughs> and, you know, there's this Daron, you know, he meets Daron the drunk. We'll talk about him a little more later. He meets him real briefly in this early, you know, early on meeting Egg. But his, his presence is more felt when he comes in and admits who he is and all that and gives them the warning. But he's clearly a lord of some kind, even though he, he doesn't wear like his Targaryen heraldry. He is going to be heir to the throne in about 12 years, but he's also pretty far down the line in succession at this point. It's about to change dramatically for him in that regard. But people just leave him alone, right? They, like, if he was some poor drunk guy, they'd kick him out. But this is a drunk rich guy. He's, he can pay for his drinks. They don't care what he does. He can sit there and, and ruin his life if they want. No one cares. He Also, if they kick him out, he might come back the next day and have him arrested or something. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's like he has the privilege it's not really a he's, it's, it's an awkward way to use your privilege to be to drink yourself <laughs> to death but it is an example of that in a very oblique manner that no one's gonna he can uh, safely be drunk in public and <laughs> just pass out on a table and can be Tyrion reasonably that sure privilege, that privilege uses privilege the same way that's part of what makes these two so similar yeah like there's plenty of things that make them different but this is a huge point of comparison they, yeah, he can do that and know that he can probably just, no one's going to mess with him. He can be like insensate on the, lying on the road and people will just walk around him. But if he was some nobody, they might like step on his face or steal his boots or something. But I mean, that still might happen, but it's way less likely to happen because they know who he is and no one wants. He's good enough at it to not be quite in the middle of the road. He, he's an <laughs> expert at lying. <laughs> he said it. I'm no one's also very Tyrion like, right? Like that kind of comment. <laughs> sort of a, a pride in his his faults. Yeah. Right? It's like what John is well, he tells John, right? He's like, you know, if you're you know, you're a bastard, don't let anyone forget it. You know, or they're not gonna forget it, so you shouldn't either. Just be what be what they want you to be. He's like, Yeah, I'm I'm a drunk. Okay, then you go. Keep that in mind when you want me to ride into tilt. So. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another really important subtopic I want to get into, which is the, the attitude, the lifestyle, the pride, and the philosophy of a hedge knight. It sounds like something that a lot of nobles would look down on. In fact, it's not something that sounds like it. They definitely would look down on A lot of them would. Uh, it's, it's rare that someone like Baylor Breakspear comes along and has the generosity of spirit to not uh, hold himself so far above other people, even though he's so great. That's part of what makes it so meaningful is that he is so great, yet he still holds himself to a high standard and, and doesn't put himself above too many other people in terms of things like that. So one thing we, we get that, that's apparent about the way Arlen treated Dunk is that he praised him a lot. He was nice to him. He taught, he was motivating. He didn't use a lot of negative reinforcement. He didn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of physical abuse. There was apparently some, but Dunk doesn't think of it as, uh, out of line. He thinks, well, only that, only that one time. I didn't steal that pie. But <laughs> other than that, <laughs> it's a really nice way to summarize. Like, except for that, it's like, there's only one time that you punished me unjustly. And it's a, it's kind of a cute way to, to it's like, it's only one time that... <laughs> every other time, he, him- every other time he beat me, it was, it was okay. Yeah, I deserved it those <laughs> other times. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it's also, he, um, he thinks of being called Dunk the Lunk is, 
as praise. You know what I mean? Uh, praise isn't the word I want to use, but but it, it remember that he he's like it sounded different coming from Bennis, you know, or yeah, you know, other people that would call and I like uh, they're not being they're not being like fondly of me when they say it. He was, you know, that is a straight parallel to Gren. Remember Gren and Sam's conversation where it's like they called me Sam the Slayer. They're mocking me. And they're like, yeah, but you really did kill that other. And when I say it, I'm not mocking you. When yeah, Sir Alistair yeah. says it that way, he is. Same like they call me Aurochs. Like, he gave me that name to mock me. But quite frankly, an Aurochs is big and strong and can go miles and miles without tiring. So he chooses to... His Gren has the Zen. Gren Zen. Zen Gren <laughs> has this attitude of, well, I'm looking on the bright side. Yeah, he's calling me stupid. But at the same time, he's calling me big and strong and, and tough. So that's the part I'm going to focus on. And that's really what's going on here, right? Like, dunk the lung. He's like, yeah, he's, he's saying I'm not that bright. He's also, he's saying, also saying I'm thick as a castle wall. Yeah, yeah, like that's a good thing to be in a realm of castles and swords, <laughs> right? So <laughs> yeah, it's not, sometimes people can use it as an insult. But if you really break it down, it's a darn good thing to be, to, to have that toughness. And we see it. I mean, we're pretty far away from the actual event, but man, we just talked about how relatable he is. That's a big deal here. He's less relatable when you get three feet of land sticking out his side. And he yanks it out and keeps going. Like that, I can't relate to. <laughs> <laughs> but I can relate to a lot of this other stuff. Not knowing if I have enough money for a room, you know, things like that. Like that's, that's pretty realistic. And that's part of what I think brings people closer to these stories is like his struggles are a lot more familiar than the struggles of, Sansa and Jon Snow and I mean these are characters we can we can there's things we can find in common with those characters too but like they're dealing with like inheritance and crowns and arranging weddings for a thousand people like I've done none of those things ever and probably never will (laughs) but I will decide if I have enough money to afford things right (laughs) you know yeah yeah I will wonder where my next meal is coming from sometimes you know servants aren't just going to bring it to me at mealtime like where is that dinner? I expected it to be brought here by now. Like, we don't live like that. <laughs> and also, at this stage in our lives, you know, maybe not everyone listening, but you eventually get to a state in your life where things are a little more stable. But when I was younger, there were times when I was skipping meals and trying to decide if I was going to you know, pay for this food or pay for this bill or whatever. So, Yeah, ra- ramen is, uh, noodles it, or salt beef. It's like, just think of it that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I was saying I can relate to Dunk because one time I got a three-inch splinter <laughs> under my fingernail. <laughs> uh, some people eventually, you, most people, eventually you get to a point in your life where you're not struggling for food anymore. Not that we don't still have to make budgets, but in our youth, you know, a lot of times when you're 20-ish, you know, you are struggling to figure out which bill to pay, how you're paying for your, you know, the grocery store, you're like looking at the like cost per ounce or whatever (laughs) different things are buying just ramen noodle meals and stuff like that so i I think a bit of the movie uh rounders or or any number of other movies where you've got a main character who's pretty talented at something and thinks they can beat all the current experts at it they're a little naive but also quite good at it it's like a mix of naivete but also a lot of talent because in that movie rounders like he's a he's a wannabe poker star and he wants to just take his entire bankroll and spend it on one tournament, which is exactly what Dunk is doing here. He's like, I'm going to risk everything I have yeah. on just my first fight. And uh, if, he, if he busts out, he's got nothing, which would have been, that's the case for um, 
Mikey in uh, Rounders if he busts out and he's got no money anymore. And well, of course, in his situation, he's it's modern times. He could go borrow money from his family or something. Whereas here, Dunk doesn't even know who his parents are. So that's a huge difference. The life of an orphan in Westeros, really tough. I mean, Dunk only, one of the few reasons Dunk survived orphanhood, uh, other than some luck, was his great size. Like Arlen pulled him out of the gutter in part because of, wow, look at how big you are. You know, like all the other kids weren't pulled out of the gutter. They didn't, they weren't gifted with this great size. So something else to keep in mind there too. Okay, let's move on to a little bit about the life of a hedge knight specifically um, and what makes a hedge knight different. What an important point, for example, what separates a hedge knight from a sellsword. Um, here's another quote. The only life he knew was the life of a hedge knight, riding from keep to keep, taking service with this lord and that lord, fighting in their battles, eating in their halls until the war was done, then moving on. There were tourneys from time to time as well, though less often, and he knew that some hedge knights turned to robber during leaner winters, though the old man never had. Yeah. So that's a pretty pretty important point here. Let's let's say here, they don't get very well educated, but Nina reminds us that they do get educated in heraldry. You gotta know heraldry because those are gonna be your bosses. It's like not knowing the difference between a couple different Fortune 500 companies like in particular industry. Like you gotta know the difference between McDonald's and Burger King or you gotta know the difference between McDonald's and Starbucks if you're gonna <laughs> go get hired by one of these companies. You don't go go to McDonald's and ask to be, you know, a barista. That's not going to work out. Nor do you go to Starbucks and offer to work the fry machine. So you got to know what's what. You got to know the people's names. It helps to like have some understanding of, of their lands, what type of business they might need you for. Uh, little things like that. Hold to on, leg up. Coffee and french fries. That's it. <laughs> it's the winning, <laughs> winning combo. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> This is a uh, another important point. Yeah, the, the the risk of it, right? This is what makes the focus of the story. I'll say, I take some of Nina's words here. Literally, the hedge knight, so fascinating. The hedge knight as a Westerosi institution strat- constantly straddles the line between peasant and noble, poverty and gentility, right? They're poor, but they're always working with and for the nobility. So they're constantly around the nobility and constantly struggling to live up to, you know, looking the part constantly putting on airs. Yeah, putting on airs, just having to know how to handle that. And that's it's difficult when you hedge knights can't eat cat food. <laughs> <laughs> when you don't have an edu- a strong education, you're not good at talking. Dunk really has to get by on his size. He's like, look at me. I, I, I you can tell I'd be good, right? Because I'm not going to explain myself very well. It's really interesting. That is one thing about the idea of a, a, a hedge knight in general, like maybe the, the code or whatever of a hedge knight. And then especially when you start thinking about the difference between a hedge knight and a sellsword and how close hedge knights are to turning into just, you know, thieves even. But the fact is that, that, that everyone doesn't even have that code, right? Think again, you kind of got to look to the next book, but think about how different Venice is from Dunk, right? They're both hedge knights, but they have completely different mentalities, completely different levels of honor. And that you can also see why so many people might be suspicious of hedge knights because so many of them do turn to crime or because they don't all stick to the honor that they have. Fact is, landed knights, they don't all have the same code either. They're sure. not always, I mean, we're, I'm sure we can talk about parallels between Dunk and the mountain or whatever, you know, that, that 
the, a, a constant theme that we we're going to probably going to come up over and over again is just because you're a knight doesn't mean you're honorable. Just because you're honorable doesn't mean you're a knight or just because you're not a knight doesn't mean you aren't the, all the different permutations of the right characters knight, like Sandor and Brienne. Yeah, like it just comes up yeah. so much. You're totally right. And and that's one thing I think that is kind of unique about Dunk is that he doesn't even think of knighthood as not that he doesn't think of it as a rank, but to many people, knighthood is just a rank. It's just a pass. It's just a level to get to so that I you know, can order people around and you know, maybe have nice armor and food wear. But to him, it's a social responsibility. Yes. To him, it means you have to help people out and do the honorable thing. And, and he's just going to do that whether or not he has the official title of knighthood or not. Whereas other people who have the official title of knighthood, they're may or may not do the honorable thing. And I think that Baylor maybe has enough experience in the world to understand that all head knights aren't the same and sees in Dunk that he is a good one. You know? Yeah, that's a really, really well said, Sean, because also it, it brings home, like, I think a central theme of this story, which is that, yeah, it isn't that title that matters. Whether or not Dunk was actually knighted is a fun thing for us to think about and maybe debate a little bit. But ultimately, I think what George is telling us that his behavior is what matters the most. And in terms of behavior, there's no question he's a knight. There's no question that Brienne is a knight based on that same standard because of her behavior. We see inside her head. We see the decision she makes. Very similar to what we see with Dunk. We see them do good. They want to do good. They want to do the right thing, as you put it. And the right thing, sometimes it's challenging to figure out what the right thing is. But sometimes it's not. But sometimes it's yeah. difficult to do the right thing. It's not the it's not the figuring out what's right. It's the actually making yourself get involved because of the, the threat the, the to yourself. The sacrifice you have to make for it, or the risk you have to take, or whatever. Yeah, very well said. So I have this point here written: knighthood versus hedge knighthood, and there is a difference. Like you said, with a regular knight, a non hedge knight, you would the things to worry about would be: well, what are they really motivated by? Is it greed? Is it glory? Or are they one of the good ones? Um, with a hedge knight, well they're probably not terribly motivated by greed or glory because they don't have access to much, but they might be desperate. That, that's the thing you're saying is like, like why some of them are, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm scared of hedge knights because anyone in th- at the edge of poverty might do something desperate. Desperation does drive people to do things they might not normally do. But if you have this powerfully held philosophy, even through tough times, you won't go beyond the limits you've set for yourself of honor and, and, and such. There's this very quick quote, uh, a hedge knight must hold tight to his pride. Without it, he was no more than a sellsword. I I really thought about this one a lot because he's mostly unbothered by his signs of poverty. It's it's his attitude. It's a philosophy. It's a code. And it made me think of Sir Illifer and Sir Creighton from A Feast for Crows. Some farm boy on a piebald horse went by, and an hour later, half a dozen men afoot with staves and scythes, they caught sight of our fire stopped for a long look at our horses, but I showed them a glimpse of my steel and told them to be along their way. Rough fellows by the look of them, and desperate too, but ne'er so desperate to trifle with Sir Creighton Longball. No, Brienne thought, not so desperate as that. She turned away to hide her smile. Thankfully, Sir Creighton was too intent on the tale of his epic battle with the Knight of the Red Chicken to make note of the maiden's mirth. It felt good to have companions on the road, even such companions as these two. Right? Like, those two were ridiculous but in a way that makes sense, especially with this to round it out. The pride is really important. That's why this guy is telling all these tall tales. It's important for him to hold on to his pride because, well, at the time, we were like, well, it's just otherwise he's embarrassed. But no, it's not that. It's not just about your outlook and how people see you. It's to keep yourself 
personally from turning to desperation to turning dark to turning to to, to jumping the line from Hedge Knight to Sellsword. That's it's amazing to me that that scene with Creighton and Illifer with their silliness is actually hits a lot harder when you think about it this way. And it's like, no, that's not just silly. George added some comedy to it, no doubt. Like even Brienne smiles. And Brienne isn't exactly a big jokester, right? So she doesn't like mockery. It's almost like Victoria now. She doesn't really trust it because it's always aimed at her. or She's had too much of it aimed at her for her to, to appreciate it. But this puts a whole nother spin on it that it's a little silly, yes, but behind that is an very important... Uh, line that they just can't cross because once you cross that line, you probably you may not ever uncross it. Uh, you become Sir Venice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Venice yeah. really is. He probably has jumped that line. He calls himself a hedge knight, but he does seem more like a sellsword, right? Yeah, the way we think. You about know, that's it. another difference too between the hedge knight. Something I seem to remember that Dunk thought about was that they kind of choose their lord. A lot of knights. It's just because of their land or their their inheritance, their family, that they are bound to some lord. That lord isn't necessarily a good person. Yeah. Right? But a hedge knight, they choose their lord. You, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be a knight for you because I don't think you're doing the right thing, you know? So at least ostensibly, a knight that does have a, even a hedge knight that has a true code of honor might be more trustworthy than a landed knight because the landed knight is subject to whatever the lord yeah. wants. Yeah not necessarily to whatever the right thing is or protecting the innocent. Good the point. Lord wants, go kill those peasants. So well, the knight has to go kill those peasants if he's loyal to that Lord, you know? That's a great and, point. And again, yeah. we see a million examples of knights who are not doing the right thing because their Lords are telling them to do something that's not the right thing. So his, Dunk's first loyalty is to his vows, to his knighthood. That's where he's for. You're right, that's a great point. Yeah. Now, the problem, of course, is you can't just look at someone and tell whether they're one of the dunk types or whether they're Sir Benis, other than, you know, looking at their teeth, maybe, but... <laughs> maybe you can smell them out. <laughs> <laughs> also, staying briefly on the topic of Illifer and Sir Creighton, that scene has a familiar feel to this one in that we're about to be at the point where Dunk is, doesn't want Egg to come with him. He's like, nah, I don't want you around, you know, don't stay, I don't want to be with you. But Egg insists... And eventually, Dunk is happy. He's like, I'm glad, actually, this has worked out pretty well. And it's the same thing that happens here. Brianna first is like, I don't want to be around you guys. My horse is too fast. I travel alone. And they're like, nope, we're knights. And we just can't not escort you. You know, that's just how it is. And he's, she's like, all right, fine. And then eventually, she's like, it felt good to have companions on the road, even such companions yeah. these two. So it's very, yeah, like, I like that a lot. Yet one of the many, many connecting points between... Uh, Dunk and Brienne. Gotta love it. There's, uh, I, I'm eager to discover new ones because I'm sure there's going to be. When we take such a close look at it, that's when we find even more. Real quick, sure. let's also take a look at this awesome shirt that Rita got for me. Oh, hell yeah. If you're yeah, listening, Dunk's it's uh, Dunk and the Tall Shield. Exactly. Yeah. The Shield, of course, will be one of the many other things we have to talk about going forward with our coverage, but that will not be today as we're about to wrap things up. Comment from Sophia on our Flick group. Shout out to our commenters over on Flick. You guys have provided us with many excellent discussion points and comments and topics and questions for us to uh, enhance our listening experience and podcasting experience. Sophia says, Egg's snarkiness reminds her of Arya, which is a wonderful touchback to what we were saying about being sort of pretty far down. You know, you're the fourth or fifth or sixth child and the other older ones are getting, you know, more attention, more education, more 
prepared for ruling and farther from your age. Yeah. So you still have this like rank, but without as many privileges and without as much like front and center. So you can see where some of that sarcasm might come from. Without as many expectations and responsibilities. I think particularly most importantly that he just has kind of been able to to do whatever. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, Especially when we compare to some of the other like farther down the line of succession type characters, like ones who the farther down you go when there's a big family, the more I think you're likely to see George characterize these characters, these farther down the line of succession characters as of this type. You see him make more sarcasm and attitude and snark amongst these characters that are not amongst the first and second born. For example, a good one would be Jerry and Lannister, who Tyrion portrays as he just didn't, he just stayed away from everything. He just didn't play the game. Like the three older brothers were, two of them were always trying to just win Tywin's attention and Tywin was just dominant and Jerrion's like, I'm just not going to be a part of any of this because, well, we don't exactly know why, but he was very sarcastic and snarky and had some of the same attitude and that's why he got along with Tyrion pretty well. <laughs> While we're at on the subject of comparisons to some of the early characters in A Game of Thrones, since the Stark children are the ones we know the best, uh, we obviously don't get POVs from other children. Like there's other, I could think of other people who might would fit this, but we didn't get enough of them. Like there's probably some phrase that are pretty down the line, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's for sure. How funny that we're going to actually see Walder Frey in the third story. Yes, indeed. Little, little Walder. I, I know this is taking us forward to the third book, like Aziz said. Did you realize that was Walder Frey? Did it stick out? I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> there's a strong <laughs> chance that I didn't piece that together. There, I got, uh, and also, there's a chance that I did, but then lost the, the memory with everything else. I, I, I remember reading the second time, The Hedge Knight, thinking like, what's with that drunk, what's with that drunk lord in his dream? And then I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I just forgot. I just had like a, I had to re-remember, you know, who he was <laughs> yeah. there on, you know. Yeah. So, speaking of wine, um, Sophia also writes that Raymond's offer of Arbor wine had you know, the eyebrow-raising moment there because we've talked about how Arbor wine is often a sign of dishonesty. There's going to be some lies told. But this might predate that theme because uh, Raymond certainly does not turn out to be dishonest. He turns out to be, as Sophia says, he's more like Sam, where it's like John's election where he's going around trying to get votes for for uh, for John. And um, even though, even as John himself is like, I don't know if we can get this to work, but his friend is backing him up. I don't know. You could say yeah. maybe because Raymond is going around trying to get people on board that that relates to it and that Dunk is lying in that conversation. Ooh, the dishonesty of him being a knight. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, okay. Okay. That's a good call. Very good call. There is, there is some implied dishonesty in there. Maybe not from Raymond himself, but, but, but also maybe, maybe he's like uh, exaggerating the circumstances to get people to fight on Dunk's side or something like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It is something I thought about earlier when you were in the beginning, we were talking about a couple different things like George's style and how it might have changed over the years. Something that's distinct about this story is we're only getting one POV. And also just thinking about the equivalent number of chapters that um, think how longer and or fuller this story would be if we had different perspectives. Like yeah. what if we got this story from the perspective of, of, of Raymond and Baylor or, you know, other or just three POVs. Yeah. What if we had three POVs? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. That would be sort of like more similar to A Song of Ice and Fire. So that is a great point because it reminds us of another difference in the way this is written. It's it's unique in that sense. Yes, we we talked about how it's different than Fire and Blood and World of Ice and Fire because those are less story-like and more history-like, one more so than the other, but both along those lines. And A Song of Ice and Fire is this vast multi-POV story where this is, well, it's still vast in its own way because it's in the same world, but the story isn't as big. Uh, and there's only one POV. So yeah, it's a good like, little way to look at it. Think where we were in the story of Game of Thrones five chapters in. It hadn't <laughs> even started. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. But it's already like, reached a climax and finished in this dunk story. So yeah. Uh, but also, Game of Thrones is so much more in-depth because you have so many different storylines and characters involved. So pros and cons to it all. Definitely, definitely. Well said. Okay, a couple of quick wrap-ups. Dunk's sense of unworthiness, reminding us of John. That's another one that's uh, pretty good. Compare the phrase thick as a castle wall to you know nothing, John. You know, both of them just kind of like... Oh, that's self, good, yeah. Kind of yeah. self-aggrandizement internally. Like um, being like, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not good enough. Or yeah, you know nothing. Thick as a castle wall. That's very good. I like that catch a lot. We'll consider that one going forward. I think we maybe need to explore that one more. We'll have to keep our eyes open for more John to Duncan unworthiness connections. Very good catch, Sophia. Guinevere Greenstone's good question to leave ourselves off with. Are there any History of Westeros episodes you would recommend watching before next week? Well, certainly if you want to get yourself really well settled with the Blackfire Rebellions, we've got a lot of Blackfire Rebellion episodes. You could start with, um, if you want to start with episode two, if you if, if it's a re-listen for you, episode two is Daron. So that's kind of useful to have Daron in mind and all that. And the episode right after that would take you a little farther down the timeline. Our two Summer Hall episodes are pretty relevant, although you could, of course, do those after um, or at some other point. Mm. Can I point out the irony that when I bring up Summer Hall, you're like, yeah, it's it, your superficial understanding is pretty much it. There's not that much known. By the way, we have two episodes on it. <laughs> 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 at least two hours each, right? <laughs> yeah, we know a lot about what leads. We know a lot more leads to it and who's there, but the actual, like, what went wrong and exactly and what they were doing. The other thing we know a lot about is the fallout, the effect that it has yeah. on characters yeah. like yeah. Ares. So that's a yeah. lot to talk about in Rhaegar. For example, one of the main topics is, is Ares' is uh, um, obsession with wildfire rooted in part in trauma that he witnessed Summerhall when he was about 15. Like he's almost his whole family was killed by wildfire. So see, that might have I mean, an impact on his psyche. <laughs> That's just an amazing thing about this world that George has created, the community built up around it. This podcast is that mm. we're, we're talking about Dunkin' Egg, right? And we just went for two hours. And I think we're on the second scene of the yeah. first book. You know, like, <laughs> we did a lot of setup. a lot of material. There's a lot to say. There's a lot of richness to it all. You're so right. Now, we probably will make, we probably get farther next week because we won't have done as, we won't be doing as much setup, much introduction, you know, br- talking about bringing you back in here and all that stuff. So we should be able to, get farther into the story. But that's, that's not to say we didn't do a lot today. In terms of story progress, there wasn't a lot, but we talked about a lot of really interesting, fun stuff. Uh, There's a lot more to it than plot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're not into this series if you're not into setup and world building. I mean, you're just not. You're not into this podcast if these things don't resonate with you at least a little bit. So um, I'm preaching to the choir by saying, oh, no, it's as good as covering the story. Like, yeah, Aziz, we know. That's why we're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Hagee, by the way, good comment here. He says... Radio Westeros has an episode on the Hedge Knight. So that would be, you want to round out your knowledge, a great place to start. Go check out Radio Westeros. We, of course, always endorse all their episodes. Someone who's uh, put some thought into this ahead of 
ahead of us. They might um, get you to think about some things you hadn't considered, maybe bring some questions over to ask us that they inspired. So either way, though, that's a great suggestion. Um, so let's hit on our outro. We'll pick up where we left off next time. That's how we're doing things. So no need to say what comes next week. We're just going to pick right up where this was. Um, I guess all the secret good stuff comes next week. Better be there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so thanks to everyone who came and watched live. Thanks to Ashea for all the amazing management um, behind the scenes and commentary alongside it. Thanks to Sean. I'm glad you're back, my man. Yeah, it's awesome. Can I also share? Sean got three kittens. John and Sean, oh, yeah. you really should tweet your kittens more. Just saying. I should. So then I, I can tell everyone. Yeah, everybody go follow Dancing Sean, who has to have posted pictures of his three kittens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is it worth grabbing them right now? Is that too much? Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to keep re- I'm going to read He's a few gonna more things. He's going to keep talking, so come back. People well, love it. The, the risk is that they jump on a keyboard and mess everything up. <laughs> well, that's fine. It's a risk we'll have to take. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks to our History of Westeros mods. Um, particular shout out to Scott Wartman for making sure the episode gets posted in the group each week. Thanks to our commenters over on Flick and Facebook and Slack and Discord. Lots of different things happening, lots of discussions happening on those groups. You can sort of pick which version of social media you like best, find the type of discussion format that you like best, and join us for that. You might get your name mentioned out loud. You might read aloud one of your questions. You might do that several times, as several of you may know from being regular commenters. Thanks as well to Michael Klarfeld, a.k.a. Claradox.de. That's his website. His maps are what you see behind us. He also is responsible for our video intro. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Revitas intro music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our regular History of Westeros intro-outro music. Thanks to the Engineer for audio engineering, sound quality assistance, and it sounds like we have cats. We do have a cat. Which cat is this, Sean? This is Cora. Her name partly inspired Mokoro. Mm-hmm. Lame tattoo on her face. <laughs> it's so cute. But mashed up with Cora, the Avatar character. She's <laughs> Her in a storm right now. Nice. She knows she's a star. Yeah, she's like, I'm on, I'm on a live stream. All right, <laughs> it's so cute. She's on his shoulder. Nice. <laughs> a great way to wrap things up. Wish I could get her to turn toward the camera. I know. She's gonna do what she's gonna do. Yeah, she I'll knows. She knows she's, she's got a good butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all the other cats want to see. Any cat watching this. <laughs> Mother cats are like, for shame. Oh, oh there, that's a good picture. <laughs> poor, poor Aziz can't see this, but I know, it's really I, I can't see any of this. Oh, too I can bad look at you. it later. I can look at it in a minute. Okay, you should. <laughs> I don't have it's a live cute. shot. But anyway, thanks again, everyone. Check out Here Be Dragons. Our friends over there are, are covering the first three episodes of Loki. I haven't watched Loki myself yet, but I'm going to. I did the same with WandaVision. I just wait for it to all be out and watch it all at once. That's cool. So it sounds like it's going pretty well. Most of the reviews are pretty good. So I, uh, I'm curious what HBD I has mean, to say. It's no boys, but. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, everybody. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Picking up where we left off. More of the Hedge Knight. And you know what to do in between now and then. Valar. Reread us. <laughs> <laughs>